Get ready for the very latest organizational and human development research briefing from the Oxford Review. The number one source of analysis, research, and thinking to help you become the most impressively well-informed and knowledgeable professional around so that you can lead any organization to success in any situation. You are listening to the Organizational Success Academy podcast from the Oxford Review with your host, the Editor-in-Chief, David Wilkinson. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Joe Franco Wheeler, who's the Director of Organizational Development and Diversity at Inmasat, which is a world leader in global mobile satellite communications and provides telephone and data services to users worldwide, portable or mobile terminals, which communicate with down ground stations through, I think it's 14, geostationary telecommunications satellites. Inmasat's a British company and their network provides communication services to a range of aid agencies, media outlets and businesses, especially in the shipping airline and mining industries where they need to communicate, particularly in remote regions where there's no reliable kind of terrestrial network. Two months ago, that's November 2021, Imasat announced a merger with Viasat and Viasat's a similar company, it's a communications company based in California and is also a, a leading provider of high-speed satellite broadband services, so you can see the similarities there, and secure network systems covering military and commercial markets. Now, Joe's worked in a whole range of roles from HR, sales and business transformation, and as a management and change consultant in several companies, including AXA, Rolls-Royce, and EY. She's got a BA Honours in Philosophy from Durham University, which is a Russell Group University in the UK, and an MBA from Cranfield University, where I actually used to run the park quite a long time before she went there. And I also believe that you're a big cricket fan and one of the board at Derbyshire Cricket Club, I think it is. Correct. Yes, I'm on the board as a non-exec director of Dundee Cricket Club. Hello. Cool. Yeah, welcome. And it's great to have you on the podcast. So. Just to kind of get an idea of Imasat, big is Imasat in terms of staff? So Imasat has just under 2,000 people. Okay, so and it's not like... We're a very global organisation. So we've got about, we're in about 20 different countries. We run, you know, from ground stations where we'd only employ six to 10 people to head office in London, which has got about 800 people. And we're very geographically dispersed. Okay. Oh, right. That must present all sorts of kind of challenges, particularly given your role. So would you just like to start by explaining what your role actually is and what your responsibilities are and what kind of areas you cover and your team? Yeah, absolutely. So I lead a centre of excellence in HR, basically, and organisational development really is a portfolio of different activities that we look after. So amongst that portfolio is learning and development, leadership development, organisation design, change management, performance management, culture and values, diversity and inclusion and engagement measures. So it's a big portfolio of things, but obviously we're not doing everything to the same volume every year. We kind of flex and we run projects um, to deliver different things depending on the business need for that particular year. And we are quite a small team of organisational development project managers and consultants and uh, advisors. We're five people in. Five? For all that? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. How do you manage to do all that with five people? Well, we have to be really selective about what activity is going to give us the most bang for buck in terms of, you know, what the priorities are for this year. So, you know, we've got an amount of business as usual that we're always running. You know, there's always a learning and development portfolio. There's always a leadership development portfolio. And we always run an engagement survey, etc. But apart from that, 
you know, we go, what are the business strategy for this year? What are the business priorities for this year? And therefore, which projects do we need to support in order to to help deliver that? So, you know, one year we might do quite a lot of org design and another year there might not be very much at all or the business facing HR team would manage it, you know, with us just providing sort of tools and templates. And whereas another time there might be a huge, big transformation program that we're running for on behalf of the business. So it really, really varies. Wow, that's amazing. And so, so is all of that done in-house? Do you bring in outside consultants? Yes, if if we had a need, we would bring in outside consultants. So typically it would be more for capacity than or specialist capability that we would bring one in. But yeah, for example, we worked with a a, a small boutique consultancy last year because we were doing quite a lot of organisation restructuring and we needed more capacity in that area. So yes, we're not averse to doing that, but we do do a lot in-house. Like all of our sort of internal communication, we generally do in-house. Although again, we sometimes use a copywriter externally. So we try and be really flexible I think with resourcing models and look at you know what can we do and what should we be doing what would be good use of our time versus we could actually get somebody else doing yeah compared to a lot of organizations that's a really diverse set of activities for such a small yeah absolutely and if we were a bigger organization it wouldn't all be done by one team there'd be sort of Mm. several different teams would do that yeah interesting so and who do you report to within the organization so my team's into the chief people officer so into our H department and I'm, I'm part of the HR leadership team okay got you great okay so given that Imasat's kind of highly tech-based organization what are the biggest challenges you face you and your team oh this is such could be such a long list i think or oh, which direction could we go in really with this question so I'll, I'll pick out a couple but i'm sure they're not you know the only ones i think first of all i think it's something to do with the need to balance respecting our traditions and our expertise but with all always keeping an eye on you know what's happening and being innovative and following you know external trends and that sort of that need to be flexible and and agile and anything technical it just moves so quickly anything technology based and you know we're not a fast-moving consumer goods company we're a satellite company what we do has to be very de-risked and very long term you know we launch a satellite our satellites are the size of a double-decker bus they're in geostationary orbit they last for 15 plus years so we've got to be you know very safe and risk averse but also open to what technology needs could be required that we could be delivering that we don't even know about yet within the lifespan of this satellite so i think it's always a challenge to balance that sort of tradition versus innovation that safety versus innovation and you know that kind of i think it's a difficult one to do yeah that's quite a paradox to be managing and certainly in terms of organizational development and change as well so you're actually trying to manage that balance, I suppose. And I can well imagine there's a very kind of exciting dynamic and yet exacting industry to work in and to serve. What are the key foundations or principles that you apply in terms of learning and organisational development? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's all about prioritisation based on business needs. And I think that has to be fundamentally our, our sort of bedrock because, as you said, we're a small team you know, we don't have unlimited resources. So I think we have to be really targeted and really clear what it is that we are 
going to focus on and and making sure that focus is really laser. And I think there's a need to really understand the challenges of the business and the business strategy and to work really closely with, you know, our business facing HR colleagues. So the people who've got, you know, a portfolio, the business partners, the, the HR directors to really understand exactly what the challenges are facing their business area and make sure that when we plan our activity, which we're doing, you know, we're in the process of doing now for 2022, that what we're planning to deliver is going to meet their needs and make a measurable difference to the organisation. And I think that has to be the bedrock of everything that we do, that kind of ability to say, you know, this is where you were and this is what you need. And it's also the balance of giving them what they want and what they need as well, because, you know, sometimes there'd be a desire for I'll give you an example. So historically, my team were asked if we could deliver some sales training for some of the business there because there was a belief that there was a capability gap in sales. And actually, what my team need to do is say, what is the organisational problem that you're trying to solve? Because actually, if sales isn't performing as you think sales should be performing, let's look at how is the team structured? What is the capability? How is the team rewarded? Are the incentives in line with the behaviour and the activity that you want to see? How are the processes? Are they getting in the way? What's the capability of the management team? Are they coaching, you know, directing? Are you getting what you need? And that there might well be a capability gap identified as part of that. But just sending people on some training isn't going to address making the team work better. It's almost trying to outsource managing the team better to somebody else if all you do is a sales training course. And, you know, there are some brilliant sales training providers in the market, but they won't make a difference to your organisational sales performance unless you are really clear about where you are now and where you need to get to and what this sales training will do and what it won't do. So, for example, we delivered a programme last year that's ongoing and continuing into this year called Sales Excellence which was capability development but also alongside my colleagues in the reward team looking at the sales incentive scheme also looking at the structure also looking at the account manager model the processes and that was part of a big development program that we took part in yeah it's that bigger contextual piece isn't it because yeah. quite often you see in organizations kind of training thrown at things without the infrastructure around it being examined at the same time mm. yeah and i think that's really important and i think it's also missed in a lot of organizations that do just throw trade problems yeah and i think for me that's what organizational development is it's a portfolio and sure if we were a bigger organization maybe learning and development and leadership development wouldn't be part of organizational development however there's a a fundamental link between the two and when you're looking at projects which fundamentally make parts of the business work better, which is what I think organisational development is. It's optimising the way the organisation works. Capability development is one answer, but actually it's looking at the whole piece. It's, it's make, taking that holistic view of what is working and what isn't and what projects are needed. And I think for me, that's the importance. It's that integration. And I think the other thing that's really key is making sure that you've got absolute support top down. So, you know, making sure that actually you're not saying, well, I'm going to do this because this is the right answer, but that you've got a leader or a sponsor who's bought in and understands why you're doing what you're doing and is ready to sort of support it because we could have the best sales excellence program in the world, but unless account managers are being told this is important that you attend and you get something out of this, you know, you're just not going to get the same impact and the same buy-in and you might not even get people showing up 
up without that. So it's that kind of starting from a really good understanding of the way things are now, having done that, you know, forensically, and also making sure that you've got leaders who are supporting everything that you're doing. You've got that kind of back. Yeah, it needs to be up and down the chain. And there's an awful lot of research to show that a leadership management support is essential, both for organizational development and learning and development, and that those things are tightly integrated. And and quite often within organizations, they get separated Mm. out and they don't actually talk to each other as functions. Mm. So interesting, really interesting. And I can also imagine, kind of given the highly technical and specialized background of many of your staff and the fact that you're going to have a quite, I would think, quite a range of staff in terms of qualifications, experience and roles. Can you just give us an idea of that range and diversity that you have at IMSA? Yeah, so, I mean, we literally employ rocket scientists. So it's really willing and, you know, I work with some brilliant people who, you know, the leading people in the world in their field. And so we've got lots of PhDs. We've got people with the coolest job titles in the world, like ACE controller who work in our operations centre, because that's what a satellite is. And they are flying it in geostationary orbit and keeping it there. So we've got that huge sort of technical core. But, you know, just like any other organisation, we've also got our head office staff with, you know, finance, HR, procurement, regulatory. And we've also got a huge operations area. So our chief operations office includes our satellite controllers, our network operations. It's also IT and a huge customer services team as well. So, you know, there's a real range of capability, but definitely more on the sort of technical end. You know, we don't have men entry level roles with that don't have any experience. You know, we have worked really hard to kind of develop our early careers path, but it's not traditionally been a big part of our organization because we generally have very highly qualified people in all of our technical. Yeah. And there's, so having worked at Cranfield, where also, in fact, I was told once by a professor who pulled his glasses down and looked, peered at me over them and said, dear boy, this is rocket science. This is what I teach is rocket science. <laughs> I know I didn't realise until I went to him, I was like, how often I used to say, you know, it's not rocket science and you can't get away with that there because people no. will literally say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. You can't yes. say that anymore. Yeah. And what I found was that there's a, and, and this is the diversity piece, is getting that range talking to each other mm-hmm. because they come from very different kind of mindsets and frames Mm. and they're thinking about very different things and yet in an organisation or parts of the organisation need to be talking to each other and how do you go about that? Yeah well we actually ran a very specific culture change programme that started in 2017 and is still going now because you know you don't change culture overnight. When I was hired I joined a chief operations office I worked for the CEO and he hired me to do two things one was to set up a change capability because he was running all the big transformation projects at the time but they were all very technically led and he didn't think we'd really got a handle on the people elements of it so that was one part of my role and the other part of my role was to do a culture change program originally just for his area but when I looked at it and I looked into it everybody I spoke to who were leading the big projects and the big transformation pieces of work when I asked them about what was keeping them awake at night and what their biggest challenges were they were all talking about culture they weren't using the word culture but they were all talking about the way they interact with other departments lack of accountability in the organization unclear accountabilities and sort of conflicting goals across teams and fundamentally we had really good people who were really capable but spent most of their career learning about what their technical capabilities were and their expertise rather than about how to 
manage relationships externally or internally and get things done and obviously they had a lot of skills in in that area but there were also some gaps and people didn't really know how to talk about how we work together so we partnered with an external company who have done nothing but culture change for 20 years and therefore were able to help us baseline the culture of the organization because culture often people think it's some sort of intangible x factor that you can't really define and it's not at all it's exactly the way you share information the the extent to which people are clear on their own accountabilities and how they link to the goals of the organization you know there are all these tangible factors so they have distilled the attributes that are present in a healthy high-performing culture and we're able to measure ourselves against it and fundamentally what that told us was that our culture was getting in the way of what we were trying to do so we needed to invest in it and that wasn't just within the COO it was a across the organisation. So myself and the CRO went to the chief people officer and said, you know, can we talk to you about this culture change programme we think would benefit the whole organisation? And the stars aligned because that's something she was looking at doing anyway. And three months into my new role, I was in front of the executive committee pitching the new programme we were going to run. And we ran it as a jointly sponsored initiative between the two of them and rolled it out to the senior leadership team from October 2017. So what that gave us was a shared language and a shared experience that we could then use to talk about how we work together. So we introduced various different concepts, various language. Everybody took part in a two-day session where they were steeped in that and they all had the same experience globally. So now our teams had this sort of shortcut, shorthand language that they could use to talk about how we work together. And we're way to go. We're not perfect on everything, but we've improved on everything. And, you know, we're still embedding the culture that we're trying to be. And it's made a significant difference in how well people interact across the organisation. I was going to ask that, you know, are you actually seeing some results? Are you seeing changes in people's behaviour and the way that they're interacting? Yes. Yeah. So I think the biggest change is there's probably two things. So one is that people are more likely to interact across boundaries so before it people some were great some were not so good at even interacting with other teams it was almost a bit if they don't report to me I have no control over what they do so what can I do like if it's not command and control it isn't anything type thing and therefore I need you know there was very little matrix sort of working and that doesn't work well for a company in Mossack because we have a shared asset base you know, we're not, we haven't, we might have different business units that focus on different customers, but they're all selling the same thing, which is capacity on our satellites and our network. So we can't have, you know, different teams doing completely different things and not interacting with each other in a helpful way, because we've got, you know, a team that do capacity planning for all of the organisation. So we have to do that interaction better. So that's made a real difference. There's a better quality conversation likely and more likely to be a conversation. And then I think the second thing is that people are more likely to call it when things get stuck. So we developed this concept that we call the accountability paradox, which is where everybody sort of thought that there's not enough accountability in the organisation, but everybody also thought that their own team and themselves are very accountable. And we flagged that both things can't be true. So when we really looked into that and explored it, it was all about context and perception. So it was not the case that there were people who were just not getting on with it and not doing their job. It was more that people weren't understanding what other people's expectations of them were. They weren't having, there was an assumption that you were getting on with it and then you didn't. And I was annoyed about it, but this was never voiced. It was that kind of thing that was the challenge. So having the ability to sort of say, now this hasn't moved forward. And I thought that it would have moved forward. 
forward what's I thought you were going to do that have you not did you not think that that was your job let's talk about it rather than let's just sort of shrug our shoulders and go it's not working so it was I think a million improved conversations makes a massive difference to the organization and fundamentally at a grassroots level that's what the culture change enabled I think that's really interesting and I I think you've kind of highlighted two things that within the Oxford Review we've been kind of exploring with the members particularly this idea of Quite often, organisations are perceived as a whole series of teams, but when you start to perceive it as a team with a series of sub-teams, it it becomes a different construct in people's minds. And then this idea of exploring paradoxes is becoming a big thing, both within the research and within some of the conversations that we're having within the membership around recognising paradoxes. And once you recognise those paradoxes, you can start to have conversations about them and starting to do something with them. And I I like this idea about the the accountability paradox. I think that's... uh, yeah. That's really insightful. Yeah. And it's and what's good is, you know, we trained our own internal facilitators. And, you know, so we've got that capability to sort of get a team together and bang their heads together and say, right, let's what's actually going on here. And let's talk about it and, you know, get that out in the open and dealt with so that they can move forward. And, it, you know, it didn't used to be normal to talk about how we work together. And now it is. And, you know, I would get quite a lot of emails every week. I'll get one or two. Could somebody could you put us in touch with somebody to help with this? Is there a culture program concept we could use for this problem you know it's become normal to use it to solve business problems you know there's more to do but it's made a huge difference already yeah it's those process conversations that are so critical within well within teams but within organizations about how we're going to work together and what the problems of communications problems of perceptions and things that are critical within organizations and unfortunately very few organizations have those types of conversations that's really interesting one of the other aspects that i was interested particularly in terms of the technical staff clearly you know compared to a lot of organizations you've got a high proportion of very technical people phd level staff who in their work on a day-to-day basis are essentially data and evidence-driven roles and people you know because they're Mm. trying to get satellites into space and keep them there so and that must be quite an exacting population to do change and learning development with because their expectations of evidence and things are going to be quite high, I would have thought. How do you manage being evidence and research based in your and your team's practices and what sort of sources are you drawing on in order to do that? Yeah, so, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and luckily, it's a characteristic I'm familiar with because not only, you know, I worked at Rolls-Royce where you've got lots of engineers and lots of very bright left brain people as well. And also when I was in management consultancy, I worked with lots of energy companies, utilities, very technical manufacturing, engineering type things. So I think, first of all, that sort of left brain, right brain concept really. So obviously, I'm not a psychologist. My understanding of it is rudimentary. But the idea that, you know, left brain is evidence based fact, rational, things we can demonstrate, things we can count. If you've got lots of people who are naturally going to focus on that kind of thing, rather than the right brain, which is more relational, more conceptual, more about, you know, relationships and how people kind of get on with each other and interact and, you know, less tangible and measurable, more abstract, you're going to need to make sure that your culture change programme isn't a right brain programme. So, you know, we did have some challenges at the beginning because when we started to look at changing the culture, 
you know, there were a big swathe of people at Inmarsat that would have liked to see that said, well, you know, in, in February, we'll implement accountability and that will be done by the end of February. And, and on March, we'll focus on, you know, cultural boundaries and so on. And obviously that's not how it works when you're changing culture. But what we did have to do was much more visibility of what the programme plan was than we would normally do. So, you know, we had a methodology for the culture change that had five different phases. Typically in an organisation, we probably would have kept that to the project team and people who were experiencing it would have just experienced it as they went along. But actually, you know, we had people who were very inquisitive. And if they were going to engage in this culture change programme, they wanted to understand why was it happening the way it was happening? How was it going to work? What were you measuring, etc. Um, and for example, the first stage we did was a diagnostic of the current culture. And in the when we started to roll out the programme, the original content had sort of 10 minutes on the diagnostic and then we carried on. But people wanted to understand a lot more than that. So to satisfy that desire, quest for knowledge, you know, I offered to run an, a 90 minute in-depth session on the diagnostic for those who wanted to. And a lot of people came along to that because they wanted to understand it. So once we were able to say, this is the programme, this is what will take you through and this is what the result will be. And also, you know, this is I've done this before. This is my job. I am a culture change person. Here's the companies I've done it at before. Here's where we were and there's how we got to. People just went, okay. And they sort of accepted that. They accept yeah. authority and evidence based. So, yeah. you know, when somebody was saying, I'm not sure this is going to work. Well, what can I show you that will make you feel like it's going to work? And then we can have a good conversation about it. And then, you know, and then we can move forward. So I think it was for me, just a lot more detail and a lot more grounding in evidence and fact and research and proof of, you know, this is where it's worked before. This is the impact it's had before was needed and that's fine you know that's what people need to engage with it then we're happy to do it we've got to be flexible mm, interesting just just given the time i'm just going to skip ahead mm. what do you think are the biggest challenges facing organizations today in terms of organizational development change and learning and diversity yeah so i think again what a big question i, I think there's so many different things we could talk about um i'll pick one on change so i think that generally businesses underinvest in change as a capability, as an activity. So there is still, again, it's back to that left brain, right brain thing. If we do the perfect project that develops the perfect solution and then we roll it out, it will work. But actually, I think underestimating the amount of stakeholder engagement, the amount of hearts and minds communication, the amount of even just the technical change impact analysis. Have we really thought about what's changing for people and what we're going to need to do about it to unblock it? You know, typically, I think people invest in change management only after a fail. So it didn't work. Why yeah. didn't it work? We need more change management rather than just accepting that it's part of good delivery of change of, of transformation is to invest in the, the people elements of it up front i mean then there are companies that are really mature at this but so many companies under invest until it fails and then do the bare minimum for it not to fail rather than you know really kind of go let's get this right um, and make it fundamentally part of it so that's what i think the other is not wasting the gains that we've had due to the pandemic so really early on, when we all started to work from home in March 2020, 
I was attending sort of, you know, different networking events where there were people from different companies. And really early on, you could see there were those who were sort of saying, wow, this is such a springboard. We've been trying to do this for years. So for example, in that we'd done projects to try and we'd done a whole campaign called Flex Timber in September 2019 to encourage more flexible working. And, you know, for us, this was a springboard because we'd got real, you know, we'd got a few people who really didn't fundamentally believe it worked if people worked at home and they didn't, they wanted to see them. And, you know, we were able to demonstrate, look, what you can get done when people are working remotely it still works so there were people who used it as a springboard and then there were other people who were immediately even then saying how are we going to get back to normal as in the Mm. desire is everyone back in the office and now you can see that you know some of the big banks have come out and said our special source is everyone in the office together that's our culture and there's going to be a real divide and people are going to vote with their feet around the kind of company they want to work for so I think it's giving people that flexibility and recognizing that they want to have a life and work from home a lot but equally you've got to feel like you're part of something so you know that worked for us because we'd all worked together for a number of years but in five years, 10 years, when there's a, you know, a churn of people, there'll be 50% of people who've never worked with everyone in the office and have mm. barely met most of their colleagues. How do you still have a culture and a sense of belonging when you're not together physically all the time? And then also, how do you create an environment in your office where people want to come in? Because we don't want to be forcing people to come in and sit at a desk to do their work that they could do at home we want them to want to come in to collaborate with their colleagues so it's creating that workplace environment that will stimulate and enable collaboration and engagement that's what we're looking for yeah amazing that you were doing that just before the pandemic that was so fortuitous well it really was because it meant that we were ready because you know it's not just about telling everybody to go home we'd got all the policies set up we'd got all the guidance we'd got all the i mean we'd actually also we'd invested in expanding our virtual it because we didn't have the capacity before 2019 we didn't have the capacity for everybody to suddenly work at home so you know we'd already done that expansion because our you know i'd worked with our it team and lobbied them to sort of go you know we want more people working at home can we expand the capabilities to do that so it meant that in march 2020 we were able to just say everybody remote i mean not everybody you know, we did have a small number of operational roles who needed to be in the office or, you know, in the satellite operations centre or the network operations centre. But, you know, 80% of our roles, everybody could go home and we were ready to just sort of click our fingers and that happened. And that, you know, saved us a whole lot of pain. So, yeah, my team were very popular in March having done that. It, when it was fortuitous. Obviously, we didn't know it was coming. Yeah. And that's not just the technical side. It was also the mm. kind of mindset side of some of the managers and leaders, wasn't it? It was, yes. Yeah. So we were really punchy, actually, with that. Because, you know, in my view, pretty much every flexible working policy says the same thing, which is you can if your manager says you can, and it's not detrimental to the business. So fundamentally, you could have two teams led by different managers doing exactly the same thing. And one manager says, yeah, sure, you know, work wherever you work, not interested, as long as you're getting everything done, I'm interested in output. And another manager who goes, yeah, I prefer to see you. I think people shirk when they work from home. And they've got a completely different working environment because of that. And the policy would support both of those managers. So we took that one step beyond and we had, you know, really quite punchy FAQs that said things like, oh, my team's quite junior. So is it okay if I opt out of Flex Timber? No, you know, the issue here is that you don't trust your team. Them being there doesn't make them any more productive. You know, have you thought about how are you actually monitoring what they're doing? Because presenteeism isn't monitoring it, you know, maybe speak to your HR manager about helping you manage your team better, you know, or questioning what it is about them that you're not trusting. Like what's 
the problem here. We're expecting you to support this and you can't just go, it's my personal preference and opt out. So, you know, we were really empowering employees to say, you know, I've read these FAQs and it says here that I should be allowed to work from home because you haven't got any good reason why not to. So I want to, can we talk about it? So that hearts and minds bit was great. But also, you know, we did have a few people who just fundamentally were resistant and it's been demonstrated to them through the pandemic that their things they were worried about were applicable. Yes. Yeah, we're seeing that in a lot Mm. of organisations now. That's brilliant. Yeah. Okay, just to finish off, if you had three pieces of advice for a new head or director of organisational development, diversity and or learning, what would they be? Three pieces of advice. So I think the first one would be understand how you can best add value to the business. So there's a temptation to kind of go, oh, you know, I know what best practice in HR is and therefore I'll introduce that. So what we don't have a a leadership development program, I'll introduce one of those. Or we don't have a performance management program that I think works well, I'll introduce those. Actually, what is it that the business needs and what are the things that are going to make the biggest difference? So I think that would be the first one, understanding, you know, the business challenges and how you can best meet those and prioritising what you do according to that. I think the second one would be to build your credibility and your relationships. I was given a really good piece of advice by a partner I worked for at EY who told me that you need to match the size of the conversation with the size of the relationship. So if you have a really small relationship, you can only have a really small conversation. If you have a big relationship, you can have a big conversation. So I think me and my team are most effective when we've got really good relationships with the business so that when, like going back to my sales training example, when somebody says, can you do some sales training for my team? We actually need a relationship big enough that if we need to, we can say the issue isn't capability. The issue is the way that they're being managed or, you know, actually it's this behavior that you're exhibiting that is causing that. So I think build that big relationship so you can have those meaningful big conversations because actually we can create an environment where we've got permission to talk about how we work and the culture and how that works. And that's fundamental to me making a difference in my set and for my team making a difference. I like that. Yeah. I think that idea of credibility is so important in organisations that gets forgotten. Yeah, and it really is important. And I think as well, understanding where credibility comes from. It comes from, you know, doing a really good job and being honest. But for mm. most people, demonstrating you've actually heard and understood them and understood the business. You know, what they want yeah. from us is I understand what makes this business work and I think this will make it work better and this is what, mm. you know, and because then they know we're on their side and we want to work with them, shared goal and so on. And then That's I think the, the third right thing... question, listening. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. That listening piece is so important. And then the third thing I think has to be, you know, org development is a huge portfolio of different things. So it's about being focused. You know, we can't do everything and neither should we try. And actually, if I had a team of 30 right now, we'd be doing too many initiatives and there would be too much being thrown at the organisation and their capacity to receive that and to change is limited. So actually being focused and saying, right, this year, these are the things we'll focus on and we'll do them really well is it incredibly important, not just for management of resources, but for impact. Yeah, I think that gets forgotten in a lot of organisations. There's so much change, people get change fatigue and and some of it isn't organisational change externally. It's stuff that's being generated by internal departments. Yeah, Joe, I know you've got to go. Thank you so much for giving us an insight into your world and the world of space and satellite communications industry. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's been really interesting. This episode of the Organizational Success Academy podcast has come to a close. Subscribe for more research briefings, ideas, and thinking to help you and your organization find success in any situation.
Remember to rate and review this podcast so that we can continue to bring you the best and very latest research thinking and ideas available. We will see you in the next episode of the Organizational Success Academy by the Oxford Review.